everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Monitor Keeping Podcast. I'm here again with Kai, and we're going to get into some uh, really fun stuff today. We've got a great guest. You may have heard of him, Ron St. Pierre, so I'm really excited about this. First off, Kai, how you doing? Hey, not bad. Uh, probably better than you, though. <laughs> <laughs> I feel better than you, man. I'm actually glad I dodge, dodge getting sick. Yeah, well, I'm over it now, but man, all the fires up here are just insane. Oh, yeah, Everything's that crazy. too. South you Lake Tahoe that. is right on the edge there from from the flames. So, man, I'm actually surprised it's, it's, I'm not working. <laughs> and, now, and now, where you are, are you uh, hit much by the uh, from Ida, um, Ron? Oh, me? No, I mean it brushed it brushed us and it gave, and actually cooled us down. And right now, we're getting like outer bands of it yeah so it's been it's been really nice for us i mean what it did to louisiana was a horrible right Mm -hmm. i'm I'm not sure what it is for for me but the weather like here consistently for the last two years was maybe like 110 at this time right but the last few days have been 75 77 degrees a lot of humidity a lot of forecast and our monitors have been loving it you know slight rain just enough rain nothing too crazy but just enough to bring the humidity up, probably even change the pressure a bit. But man, it's, um, I would say, a, a, a blessing out of nowhere because I was expecting just blistering hot weather for a while. Um, yeah, I mean, I actually have the opposite problem. The rain screws me up here with breeding varanids outside. So I've had yeah. to, they're much harder to breed outdoors than indoors. Yeah. I mean, the outdoors, you get the bonus of never having to clean. But but um, but you're at the total mercy of of the, the weather. weather and where I live. Basically, when it gets when they really want to start breeding and it starts getting hot enough on its own, that triggers the daily rain and that drops the temperature. And so I cut. They start to get up to operating temperature, and then it gets they get it pours and they drop to 78 degrees. And then if they're in the middle of the process of going through any sort of breeding or, or egg development, it just throws it all off. So I've had to, to make some very interesting uh, changes over the last couple of, over this year, particularly trying to, I'm trying to get it to the point where they produce like they produce for you guys indoors, Yeah. You know, where you can reliably get eggs, clutches one after the other. I can't do that outside. It's just, I, when the weather's good, I do okay. And then when when we get a lot of rain, it just jumps right off a cliff. Now, so. what are you looking to stay consistent on on the outside? Like, let's say you said that the rain messes you up, so you would prefer to stay just the hot and consistently sort of drier without the rain. Yeah, I mean, what I did was counter to everything else that I have here, which all the other stuff. It's a battle to keep it cooler, um, and in some cases actually get it wetter like the anoles need a lot of rain and stuff like that but the monitors what i ended up doing was i i covered everything the tops in plastic sheeting completely to keep all of the rain from getting in there um and then part of the fronts mine are in eight by eight by eight outdoor enclosures so um so i covered them i so that no rain is actually getting in anymore i and then um inside in the interior they have a cool subfloor that they can go underneath um, which is basically just a deck uh, you know yeah. a wooden deck that they go underneath there i can't get them out you know they're completely um but what i did was i built a miniature uh plastic greenhouse inside the enclosures that they can go into 
that gets 150 degrees when the sun's hitting it. I mean, it's, I can stick my arm, it, it can be 95 out and I can put my arm in there and it feels like I'm putting my arm into a hot car. That's yeah. awesome. That's so, uh, it's great ingenuity. It's just thinking way outside the box. That like, was the only thing I could come up with. I mean, it, I, I was running out of options. I was getting pretty discouraged. I, I breed Ackies outside and I have them in uh, a large group in a large outdoor enclosure. And I get a couple of clutches early on and then nothing else. And and I realized that it's the rain that just, as soon as it really starts to get hot enough, it just stops their production. Yeah. So I built it for those. And then I, now I'm using it for the lace monitors and the Spencers and the Mertens. And oh, I couldn't, awesome. I couldn't get the Mertens to go either. And then I set them up like that. I also installed these black plastic mats, um, and put them in full sun so they get too. You can fry an egg on those things in the hottest part of the day, wow. and they they're using all this stuff. So I just gave them lots of options, and yeah. they all they started doing what they needed to do, and and now they're all laying eggs, and the eggs are good. So. Sure. You know, it's still That's not crazy. as good as the indoor stuff, but it's close. Do you mind me asking you what that temperature of that subfloor is down there? Um, it has a range. So in the wintertime, it stays pretty warm. Um, so I never, I don't use any kind of supplemental heating at all for any of the, any of, actually any of the stuff we work with. They, so basically every enclosure has a subfloor. And, and then in the wintertime, I'll put four inches of cypress mulch on top of it. And they just go underneath there. Underneath there, it'll stay above 50. I know that for sure because I've temp gunned it when it was 32. Wow. And it was still like 54 underneath there. Nice. Um, and in the summertime, I, I would imagine it's probably in the 80s. I've never actually tempted it in the summer. But I see them go in there only when, you know, we haven't had any rain and it's stupidly hot here. Like night, like the last few weeks, it's been like 96 every day. So in the hottest part of the day, they are going under there and they're and they're hanging out. So, um, you know, and again, and then they, the backsides of my enclosures are also shaded. So they have, so they, so like the four by eight by eight front is where I keep it the hottest. And then the back, I allow it to get much cooler. Yeah. So they've got multiple zones and they go all, they had, they can go all the way up to the, to the, you know, they're shelving all the way up to the highest points and big yeah. branches and stuff like that. For for me, with my heat here and how I kind of balance with that, so I didn't realize that they really needed that, like a like a subfloor. And I don't actually have outdoor setups at all. They're just indoor setups. But in the coldest area, it's all it is is just a, a little uh, – it's where I set the water dish. But under that, it's cool, and it gets a right. good 65, 70 degrees down there on, on its own, right? And it's now touching the floor that gets cold as well because where I, where I live in Southern California gets pretty hot. Yep. So typically we recommend people to lift it off the floor, but now I'm using the floor to actually suck out some of the heat that um, remains 80 degrees or, or higher. Right. And so my females, they'll go through the whole process, but I realized, I think it was just so much heat everywhere that they were getting stressed and then either reabsorbing or just the eggs would be bad. Right. Um, and so then once I added that 70 degree range availability on top of whatever else I was giving them, that's when my eggs would look so much better. Um, and the females yeah. would be going through without a problem. Yeah. And you're, you're talking the Indicus. Yeah, right? just the Indicus. But the Kimberly's also have something similar to where they have a cold pocket that they can get to in the cage. You know, um, yeah, that's, that's, 
That's how I've tried to set them all up where everything has an ability to get to 75 somehow. Um, it's hard for the cages on top. And so I just heat them a little bit less and maybe only random animals go up there, but my breeding groups stay, stay down. Yeah. Now I want to get back in, into one of the reasons that I was excited and wanted to have you on Ron was because the problem solving and the, the stuff <clears throat> you're thinking of to uh, adjust or adapt to your specific problems. And that's right. something we're trying to, um, to reach like to, the whole nation or whoever's listening to the podcast about monitor keeping is that uh, certain things that work for one person or the person that wrote a care sheet aren't going to work for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I guess it's more like an instruction manual of how to think and how to adapt more than it is monitors because it can be used across the board uh, for so many things, but uh, definitely, you know, getting out there, using your brain and to solve your problems. But I guess before we oh, go ahead, guy. No, no, no. It's like it, it's. I mean, we're like a few minutes in, but I'm already mind blown that he shoved a greenhouse inside another enclosure, <laughs> and then all the other stuff too. It's like I would have never thought that at all. You right. Know? I just I would work. I would actually suffer, like he said, deal and basically at the mercy of the weather. Because I actually have never really kept too many things outside other than some tortoises, right? And those only for part of the year. Um, out here i'm actually still trying to study the weather enough because it gets you know 110 115 sometimes and i just don't know how to really deal with that other than providing more shade but it'll still be so hot you know um and really i have to like that i haven't even absorbed that information yet or how am i going (laughs) to apply apply 70 degrees when it's 100 outside you know um that's hard well i i can tell you this for sure um, actually, I shouldn't say for sure, but my experience at this point has been, and I, and this has worked pretty much universally with, I don't even know how many species I've bred outdoors because I'm pretty generalist in my, in my, uh, interest. I like, I bred everything from amphibians and tortoises to lots of lizards and snakes. Um, but I am primarily at heart, a lizard guy. And I primarily worked outdoors almost the entire time, although I do have a building and, and I've always had some indoor stuff, right? But the the primary thing is it's not so much about specific temperatures. I see a lot of people get hung up on that. It's not really about that. What it's about is a swinging gradient and the ability to thermoregulate by moving up and down and back and forth. Like, I mean, if you think about it, um, you know, in the wild, they're not going to have at all times, 75 degrees, and they're not going to have at all times, you know, whatever, 180 degrees, whatever the hot spots they're sitting on. So it's going to, there's going to be a range. It's going to be spread out over time. Your goal is just to provide that ability for those temperatures, for them to, you know, get hot when they want to get cool when they want to. And part of your uh, situation you know, for the most part, is going to fluctuate anyway. Even if you're inside, when it's summertime, it's going to be a little bit warmer, right. even in a climate-controlled room. And most people, the climate control is not so extreme that it actually keeps it at those low temperatures. Like the AC struggle when it's yeah. super hot and when it's cold, <laughs> that you'll get you'll get cold. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, back back to the point you made about having the stuff on the ground that was a lesson i learned the hard way very early on with outdoor stuff because i knit my first like commercial setup that i ever built 
to breed uh, tegus was this tub system, huge tub system, and it was off the ground, so it was easy for me to manage. And tegus can take freezing temperatures, no problem, right? But this one particular year, I had you know, 100, 150 babies left over in like early October. And we had an unusual cold front come through and it only got to 55 at night. But because those tubs were raised and the cold got underneath where their bellies were, mm. it killed like half of them. And I've yeah. never seen tegus die from cold. Like I would leave mine out when covered in ice and they'd be, you know, in their boxes under the ground where it was 50 some degrees yeah completely unfazed by it but because their cages were raised and their bellies were on the ground you know there's there was some there's something i, I don't know exactly the mechanics of it all but yeah. it's I the know space and it's basically allowing the heat gradient or whatever temperature to come through actually so um, yeah. yeah and and their and their stomachs though in particular seem to put them at, that's their vulnerable spot yeah. At least that's what it appears. So now everything I have is on the ground and almost all my enclosures have subfloors, which gives them a second. So they basically have two layers. Yeah. And uh, see, you that's know. to me, amazing information. You know, right. if I ever get the chance to keep outside um, something, I'm going to definitely pay attention to because I think, yeah. how, how am I going to do this? If I ever, you know, 50 degrees is for most people is way too low, right? And in most under most teachings and like, let's say when a, when a beginner asks, um, what do I keep the cold side as? We typically tell them 75, even 80 degrees, but yeah, man, it can get, it can, they can take some more, some, some actually um, much colder temperatures than what we're aware of and what we're really practicing on the normal. Um, yeah. Even just this last year, I had my male Kimberly's go down to 50 degrees. Um, they were just, in a cage in front of the window. That's all it was. Yep. That's all it was. And um, the yep. rest of the room managed, but they got to bass for a little bit. I fed them very little, but they went to sleep at 50, 60 degrees. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, all of the lizard species we work with, including the lace, the Spencers, the Mertens, the Ackies, the, all the blue tongues, all of them are left outdoors year round with no supplemental heat, just the subfloor. Now, if it's going to be really cold, I do use six mil plastic to cover the cages and create like a greenhouse. But and then I roll up the vent, the plastic during the day, drop it at night. And that, but the only purpose that really serves is to keep wind chill off. Yeah. So if it's 32 on the outside of the plastic, it's 32 underneath that plastic. Um, now, the caveat is that even though they get down super cold at night or can. In the morning, the sun comes up, hits the plastic by by 10 or 11 a.m. Underneath that plastic is already in the 90s, and I have to start venting it. Once I vent it, it drops it back down to like 75-ish or so, but they can bask. So they're getting the yeah. sun. So as long as they can always – like if you put them in a room and kept them at 50 degrees, you'll kill them for sure yeah, for right. over three or four days. But if they have the ability to, again, to get warm if they need to, get cool if they want, you know. And, and they go back and forth, they're totally fine. And that's a natural cycle for them. Uh, most of Australia gets cold yeah. in the wintertime. 
you know, maybe just the, the very northern part of, of Australia doesn't really get. And even there, I think, is still sort of Florida-like as far as temperature ranges because they do have a gradient. It's not like totally, you know, static equatorial kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I'm using that same plastic indoors. But uh, what I've done preparing for this winter, and I've used it in different areas already in my in warehouse, um, but I'm basically creating a, an Indonesian or tropical room yep. by using uh, two layers of the plastic. Cause I tried one and it, I, I get about five to 10 degrees difference right now. Um, cooling one side of it and just messing around with it. But I found that if I use two just on this loft area that um, I can trap the air kind of in between the two. So it's not, that's losing, a good idea. Uh, yeah. It's not losing air that, or not losing that much because it's acting as that buffer. Yeah. Um, and it's nice. saving money using that air conditioner or the uh, the heating option on the air conditioner too. <laughs> and, you, and you guys just said you're using six millimeter plastic, like the painter's plastic. You okay. Yeah, it's paint. Yeah. Yep, that's exactly what it is. You get it at Home Depot. It comes in you know fifteen hundred foot rolls. Yep. Okay. It's clear. It's kind of opaque. Yeah. They, it's called clear, but it's not truly clear. But yeah, that stuff. I've been using that stuff for twenty or thirty years now. For every, it, it's just great. Every year yeah. I buy a shit ton of it in, in the fall and roll it out and have it on hand. And some See, years I don't have to use it. There's a company, if, Kai, if you're going to use something indoors, um, and I can't remember the name, but I'll get it for you. They, they make these poles where you can make like a dust room if you were doing something inside of a house uh, wow. reconstruction. And they actually have zippered doors. So you can cut just a straight line about seven feet up. And they're, uh, it's like duct tape on one side for zippers. And you put it right on the the uh, lines, and that way you actually have a zippered roll-up door. Or the way I did it, you can just unzip one side and push through and zip oh. behind you. So uh, that yeah. that's so that's so smart. Actually, I'm I'm gonna pick your brain about that later, because in wintertime right. I want to have when I have my uh, my shade cloth up and stuff like that, I want to be able to protect that during the winter time, and just have the the temperature um, not get so cold and block the wind chill. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I really wanted to get some the, of the logistics down on what you kind of do, like, from when you start your day and then not really <laughs> everything throughout the day, but more so like when you're working with the, the temperature fluctuations and you have to buffer. So, like, let's say when you're just moving, saying that you're removing the tarps and things at that certain time, um, how often do you do things like that? where you're going to have to pay attention and it seems like you're, you know, you got a, a flow throughout the day where you're managing that. Right. Um, yeah. I mean that what we do is pretty much um, constant. Yeah. Tweaking. Like, okay. right. So it's like, you can't like, we don't leave for the most part. There's one of us is always here. And most of the time, both of us are here. Yeah. And, and even if we have to go and like do Tinley or something, we have, another professional herpetoculturist that comes and stays here and then, you know, who understands all this stuff and manages it all. Um, there's a guy named Eddie Soto. He's. Oh, I know him. Yeah. 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 So, um, I have, I have him and he's, and he understands everything here and he knows how to do it all. So, but my setup is, is unusual and, I mean, if I, if I had the indoor space or I had, I was forced to do this indoors, 
you could set up a much more automated system and not have to do all the, right. the little stuff that we do. Um, but I, the, the benefit that I get from that is that if everything's outdoors and the cages and the caging is very large and you only have, you know, a pair or a trio at most, you never have to clean it. The, it's like totally bioactive. The, all the wild insects take care of all the feces and, and everything is just in the rain and, and all, and all that. So, um, it lets us work with more than we would, uh, you know, without having to hire a bunch of employees basically. So it's just the two of us and between her, Heather and I, we, we can take care of, you know, a couple hundred adults and a few thousand babies every year. So, yeah. The plastic that you use outdoors, is that also the painter's plastic? Or you oh, yeah. Using... Okay. No, uh, I just go to Home Depot and buy that, that, that rolls of that clear shit, man. That's, yeah. that's what I've always used. It works. I only, you I, I personally only need it to last through, through the winter yeah. by springtime. It's usually all shredded up from, you know, the winds <laughs> and stuff, but, yeah. um, but it's, it's cheap, you know, relatively anyway. And, uh, and it's a, it's a good solution. It, it, get it, it basically, I, and I use it to create, I create domes over everything, right? Yeah. I don't like put like the sheets up. I actually take, make sure the pieces are big enough to completely all go all the way to the ground and make like a bubble over all the enclosures. And then I just roll that up uh, in the morning and when the sun hits it and it's, and the temperature gets above 49 degrees or so, which uh, usually for us, it's around 10 AM. How many so cages are you are you doing with this with yeah that's that's what i'm trying to understand because there's a lot of cages <laughs> yeah yeah we have i mean we have we have um god i honestly i don't even know dude how many adults uh of all the varying things we have here but there's got to be around 300 400 adults so there's about 120 enclosures roughly big outdoor enclosures and then there's all the anole thing which is a whole other yeah that's outdoors as well and that's but that's all on rolling wheels those guys i'm just a little too paranoid to leave out in in like super cold nights because they won't they don't hide in anything they just hang on a tree so those are all in they're outside most of the year but on really cold nights we roll them in we have this 2000 square foot building that we just roll them all into mm. so and that's unheated it's sole purpose is it stays about 55 in there so when it's 30 in the 30s outside its sole purpose is just to stop wind and keep the freezing off of them then they go back out in the morning get sun again so um, you need one of those uh like they have on the pools that automatically roll up the pool cover yeah <laughs> right yeah, yeah. exactly Press the button and everything <laughs> yeah i'm if I was more technically uh, savvy, maybe things would be more automated. But everything yeah. here is pretty, pretty much all. But you know, the, the honestly, not having it automated though does kind of help you out a little bit because it forces yeah. you to go out and and it see. Does. And I, and I have caught things that I probably wouldn't have caught. You know, like mm -hmm. things that were going wrong, problems that yeah. I may not have noticed if I wasn't forced to go out there every hour or two and check on the stuff. So, right. Um, I think a lot of the beginners uh, see the equipment, the equipment that's available nowadays. And like, don't get me wrong. Uh, like some of them can be very beneficial. Um, yeah, but sure. Some of them definitely take away the, 
the fun of stuff sometimes, you know, like let's say even just with the automated misting system. Now, I mean, I guess, I guess if you had a ton of stuff and, you know, spraying stuff with your hand is going to be tiresome. And even with an automatic sprayer, you know, you'll have to go through quite a bit of that. But, um, you know, when I'm, when I'm there actually getting to spray them with my hand and I get to, you know, miss their mouth just on my own, it's, it's a yeah. whole thing that I'm missing if I'm just having a whole misking run all the time. And I'm, you know, I miss things essentially, like, yeah. just like you were saying. Um, so the fun of things, but actually missing certain, like, just as you're out there, you're forced to be out there. You're forced to mm -hmm. go and, you know, tend to things essentially because yep. you just can't let things be only automated. Luckily, it's just the lamps that I have automated and, you know, I have my, my nesting bins all heated well. But other than that, I still do a lot of things by regular labor, regular love and labor, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's absolutely the case. I've noticed over the years that, guys that get in there and get their hand dirty and do the drudgery every day tend to do better overall than the guys that spend a ton of money, set it all up and then just kind of yeah. barely interact. I mean, like yeah. I, I do all hand misting. Uh, I've never used for that reason, mostly because it forces me to look at every single one, every single day. Multiple and then times. if, yeah. yeah, exactly. And then yeah. if somebody's getting a little, a little off a little bit, then I know, Oh, okay. This one needs more water. This one's going to lay eggs, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so good the good point. thing is the monitors don't really need as much of that though, which is kind of cool. I mean, well, the bigger ones anyway, the little guys, it's probably a different story, but um, you know, the, the laser almost, I, I hardly do anything, honestly. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I feed them. I make sure their water's full and, but I have them all right outside the back. They're actually on the other side of that window behind me. And they're all um, right up against our house. So we sit on the porch and you can watch them all, the lace and stuff, run around and do their thing. So yeah, it's incredible. pretty cool. Now, yeah. I, I guess for the listeners, I want to go back real quick. And, um, of course, Ron, I know I, I'm, I'm a big fan. Let me just put it that way. Not to get too <laughs> sappy on here. But you've been around a long time and doing a lot of things. And, uh, right. you know, growing up with reptiles, your name, was it, it's popping up or it would pop up on different things. And uh, all the multiple species you've worked with, the bread or magazine articles or whatever, you know. Um, and you have kind of a unique name. So it's something that. Yeah, you, people you know, remember it. Right. Yeah. Um, it's one of those. So definitely uh, you've been around for a while. But for the maybe the newer listeners that don't know who Ron is. Um, we won't get into it so much maybe on this episode, but if you'll check out some of the episodes that NPR has already done, um, so we're not making you go back into, tell us about the first reptile you ever saw type of deal. I don't know how many times you probably said that by now. but Yeah, that's usually the opener on almost every podcast I've ever done. Right? Yeah, so, we knew that. <laughs> but I guess to that degree, you know, Talking varanids, what was the uh, what was your first experience with a varanid? Which uh, species was that? Um, shit. When I when I was like ten or eleven, I bought a savanna monitor in a pet store. Yeah, and uh, and that kind of got me hooked. Um, and then and then I I've had them all over time. I mean, like I said, I've dabbled a lot. I I was fortunate enough to grow up in Miami, so I was surrounded by all the import places. I had. I was a commercial anole. I dropped out of school when I was 16 to commercially collect anoles and iguanas and all this stuff that was loose down there. 
Right. And so, so I was supplying the pet trade with those and it put me in all the import places, which then gave me access to all the reptiles from all around the world. And I just started all the stuff that I had grown up on reading about in books and stuff like that. It was now all I could get it for the most part. So I, I ended up making very little money and a lot and bring, and I would always end up trading everything. I mean, <laughs> I, I just, I'd go in there and think, okay, I'm going to get enough, you know, uh, you know, a week's worth of, uh, of salary here for whatever I was doing. And I would always, always come home with almost nothing cash wise yeah. and all this other shit. And that included a lot of Varanids cause that was, there were some old Dittmar's books that I grew up with that I found there was in like this, they were these really old books that were in the, in this library that I, I was constantly at the library when I was a kid looking at them. And I was like, man, one day I'm going to have that and a rhino iguana and a caiman lizard. And, <laughs> and then when, by the time I was about 18, I had access to all that stuff. So I bought it all. And, yeah. uh, and then, you know, eventually I got into croc monitors in, in like the early 90s, mid 90s. And then then I was able to get those to breed. And that really uh, kind of solidified that I would always be working with some varanids of some sort after that. Yeah. So uh, and I, I want to get into those croc monitors in a little bit. when We're talking about the, maybe a different side of monitors with large monitors, actually, and the potential danger they can be. But uh, for now, um for what you keep or what you've kept in the past, is there a species that just does it for you? Is there a favorite among all of those? Yeah, it's definitely the lace monitors. Yeah, they kind of fulfill both of that. For I like shit that lives in trees. The arboreal, you know, snakes, arboreal lizards, always been the thing that really, uh, you know, is kind of my primary interest. Yeah. So they have that. They're they're a giant you know, arboreal varanid. So they've got the, you know, it's like having a Komodo dragon that lives in the trees that doesn't get so big that it's not a, a nightmare to deal with. And, uh, and the bells in particular, um, I saw them in a book on Australian reptiles when oh, I was yeah. a kid, thought for sure I would never, ever own that. Yeah. would never see them. And then when John Dragnet got those in those legal animals from, from, I guess it was Germany that he got them. I don't remember, but it was a while ago. I remember seeing them at the show they were way out of my price range, so I had to wait. Thank God, you know, a couple other guys got them and were able to get them to breed, get them established, and and now they're available for everybody. So yeah, yeah. And now we have seven adults, and uh, you know, <laughs> I've got eggs in the incubator, and um, awesome. that's yeah. I'm looking that 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 though was that's my Boland's python. You know, that's the pinnacle of everything for me. And so when I got those, we we. Uh, I built them the best set of enclosures I've ever, ever had done for anything. I was just like, I want this right here, right outside my back door where I can sit on the porch and just, so the whole thing is like 50 feet long and eight yeah. feet wide and eight feet tall. And Living the dream. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny. There's a, a two for me. If it's a tropical monitor, it would be the Gray's monitor. If it yeah. ever, you know, if there's ever a chance. And then, uh, for the Australian oh. stuff, you actually keep the the one that I like the best. It's not the Parisian, Spencers. It's, it's the Spencers, yeah. yeah. I um, I'm there will be a day, but uh, how are those? I saw a picture that kind of looked hopeful of a female. I think you posted not too long ago. 
Yeah, they're they're not that those. So I have seven of them now, seven adult Spencers, right? But six of them were raised by other people, um, and I, there seemed to have been a disconnect. They, I think, um, people had the typical Varanid mindset with raising them, and it seems to be problematic with them. They they are like super prone to obesity. Yeah. Um, and when I got them, they had these enormous fat rolls and. They had some problems, you know, I've been, I've been working out, getting them healthier. I think they're, they're good to go. And I expect to get, uh, at least maybe one clutch this season. Um, but the, but one of them, uh, Brian Johnson, the, one of my backers, basically investor, he had bought this one as a baby and he sent it to me pretty early. And he's like, this one's a male, you know, go ahead and grow it out. So I grew that one out. I grew it out how I thought it should be done very slowly. Lots of insects, moved it up to chicks and stuff like that. A lot of eggs, but I didn't stuff it and I didn't try to grow it up super fast. So it's taken two years. Um, and it's just now about big enough to where I think it, it'll probably breed this year, but it's, mm. it's absolutely flawless. When I look at that one and look at the other ones, I'm like, okay, this is definitely the, the, they need like a lower calorie diet. You can't stuff them with a bunch of rodents. Yeah. Um, they, they need a lot of heat. Uh, yeah. It's so. an exercise. Yeah. And yeah. we put them in 16 foot long enclosures oh. for that purpose so that they have a long run. So they have, you know, lots of long ground space, floor space, and they do utilize it. So they spend a lot yeah. of time cruising up and back, up and back. Um, yeah. Cause uh, I, I mean, I'm still looking at any, any information I can get on them because I hope one day, you know, I'll have the chance to work with them. But in yeah. a while, it just seems like they, um, they're they almost – there's like three to four months when they actually have food and water, and it seems like the rest of the year is just uh, – it's either way too hot or they're, they're like <laughs> – they look like skeletons waiting on a bunch of cracked yeah. dirt that's so dry – yeah, you know, waiting for that rain to come. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in the wild, that keeps all that weight right off of them. Right? Yeah, exactly. And that's the problem is trying to manage that over time properly. Without killing them. Yeah. Without killing yeah. them, yeah. 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 So my buddy Ewan Edwards is down there in Australia, and he actually went to where they were and sent me videos and photos of the pro of the land they live on. It's exactly like what you described. It looks like he said it's hell on earth. And yeah. then and then a portion of the year, I guess the whole thing floods. Yeah. So so it's both super dry and cracked ground, and then it's completely underwater. Right. So so it's like this really extreme place, and and that's more than likely why they're so prone to obesity because it's so extreme they have to get what little food they can when they're just hardwired to eat. Right. And mm -hmm. and then to make the most use of every calorie that they do get. So yeah. it's that's kind what of a. So I had a yeah. question on your uh, now to balance out the fact that there's still large lizards. You know, sometimes insects don't always cut the cake, you know, um, even with the three or four foot lizards. Um, I, I myself use crawfish for my mangrove types so that mm -hmm. that way they're not so obese. Because at one point I was just using a lot of rodents. Right. And sure, it yeah. would send females into the whole process. But. You know, it'll just make them really obese right afterwards rather than them being pretty lean. Um, what was your 
other than insects or as well as insects well, what else were you using to keep the spencers healthy but lean still i mean they're they're probably not as lean as they should be i mean okay. even the one i raised is a little you know he but he doesn't have fat rolls basically he looks like a well-fed relatively streamlined monitor and and i just kind of honestly man i rotate just all kinds of shit. We we bring in so many different insect uh, feeders here because we have all these different species. We bring in, you know, we get hornworms every week. We have black soldier flies. We have tons of superworms, crickets, um, then frozen, you know, pinkies, rodents, uh, uh, chicks, you know. And then there's a variety of different commercial diets that I'll use. I'll use rapashi grub pie. Um, I'll use, you know various cat foods i just i don't feed any one thing uh in in excess and kind of just throw a wide net of a whole bunch of different things because it's really impossible to know exactly what they really need you know as far as that and and how good you're actually doing so my thought is well if i if i give them a whole bunch of different things then i'm bound to be closer to what you know it's just a variety and moderation kind of thing Okay. And when they start to get too fat, I just take them off food. I just mean, if I, right. yeah. Uh, so I only feed those, mo- like that monitor only got fed every two to three days. Okay. I got one meal every two to three days. And um, right now, so for the, let me, let me back that up a little bit. So that was like, kind of like the maintenance thing. But when it can't, when like right now, uh, when we're getting ready to go into basically their hibernation, you know, brumation kind of mode, this, this month, I feed them every day. They get fed hard. Everything here is being fed super hard right now and will be until about the end of September, first week of October. And then funny. I start backing off same, again. Doing the same thing right now. Yeah, we, I think we all do that, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is so. when this weather is changing. I'm preparing my animals yep. for for basically their famine time. Temperatures yep. are different. Food is a lot less. But I want to be able to make sure that they're super hefty, not really hefty, more so just really well fed going into the process. So, because I'm going to be leaning them down so much. Yeah. Um, I think last year my monitors took end of December, so right around January, all the way up until April. And I just said, hey, no food or very little food, maybe like half of a mouse once a week or something like that. Maybe. Right. Yeah. It was just to, just to, you know, when they're out, they're basking a little bit, and let's say they happen to be losing a lot of weight, I'll I'll give a, a little bit, but it's not anything regular where it's like, oh, I'm gonna be feeding you consistently at all. Maybe every other week or once a week, if that, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I still let them bask. So I mean, I, I think some people take that whole hibernating and brumating thing. Uh, I, 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 maybe they misunderstand the whole process, right? We're we're not letting them cool like. North American snakes, exactly. We're, I, I still allow mine to bask for yep. several hours of the day. They definitely yep. still have water accessibility, but they're they're not completely under. So they're just it's just less of everything. Yeah, I mean that. And actually, I used to breed a lot of colubrids, and I bred colubrids the same way. I, I never ever hibernated them like that. So I I was living in Miami at the time, and I had about fifty or sixty king snakes and and corn snakes of all different mutations in this back bedroom. And all I did was in the wintertime, I opened the windows and I just didn't close them. And in Miami, you know, most days are 78, 80, 85. 
at night it'll get down in the 50s. That was it. I just took them all food and let them get whatever they did. And I, they all produced every year. And then I run into friends of mine, you know, in other states. They're like, oh, I put mine in the refrigerator for four months. And <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, that works for you. That's cool. But, I mean, I never – they and they had a hard time wrapping their head around the fact that it wasn't necessary. Right. Yeah. So, I mean – I just think there's lots of ways to do this, but with monitors, with lizards, when I, when, yeah, when I say they're hibernating, it just means that they're not off, that they're completely off food for several months while it's cold. And sometimes they stay completely underground for weeks at a time. Sometimes they're out every day sunning themselves. Yeah. You know, they, and that pretty much works for every lizard species that we have here too. Yeah. And for the listeners out there, this is important information that you watch your own animals. Yeah. Um, yep. don't, don't let your animal go through things or you see changes in your animal, but you're sticking to a book or a care sheet that's out in front of you. Yeah. If you're cooling your animal and you start to see that it's breathing funny, um, mucus that you haven't seen before making weird noises, then, you know, adjust, bring that animal back up. Something's wrong. That you miss somewhere yeah. else. Um, don't leave it down there because so-and-so said so. Or, Correct. Right. Because this is yep. still something that not everybody knows about, you know, um, to do properly, right? Mm-hmm, Even yeah. myself, I've only picked this up in the last year or two, doing it well enough. Before, I was just kind of just cutting my monitors back on food and let the temperatures of California kind of do its own thing. And then when it got warmer, the animals did their thing again, right? But, um, you know, for anybody else, you know, don't don't just take what we're saying um, and do it, you know, kind of – Try to work Correct. out the plays. It's going to be months of play. It's not It's not right. done in two weeks. This is half the year that you're playing with. And so um, in, in, in everything, you know, if you even if you need to contact us to kind of walk you through what you're going to need to do on pattern changing and what to do, pay attention to, it is not just as simple as cooling them down. You're going to have to pay attention to your own weather. I'll, if you were to ask me, I would go through the temperature ranges for your year and then kind of pinpoint on when it would be best to do it in your area you know it's just not as simple as what we're explaining right now you know right there's um there's also i know a lot of the the carpet python guys will do it with certain species but the king snake guys um where you don't just drop so the listeners know you don't just drop the temps all at once you bring them down gradually you also got to pay attention to what's in their stomach undigested meals yeah so um, yeah, if, if you want, you guys want to know more about that, go ahead and message us or there's plenty of information out there. If you just look up, um, uh, you know, cooling a carpet mic on, uh, I know on the NPR uh, podcast, the, the other shows that are out, there, there's plenty good information that you can emulate. Cause a lot of these animals still come from the same areas too. So they're all being affected yeah. by this, uh, temperature yeah. drop or changes. And we can pull a lot of good information just from other species, all the info that's out there. So. Uh, yeah, we're not. We are not saying just cut tips, and this is the right way to do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. It's a process. <laughs> Literally, you're walking your lizards in through the process. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I've been at this for thirty some years, and I learn new, cut sh- new stuff constantly. It's a constant thing. Every year, I figure out something new. Sometimes I completely tear down ideas that I've used for years. Yeah. And come up with something completely different, and I'll try it out. Same. That's not something you should probably do unless you're, you know, you have some experience. But you also, 
like you were saying, you can't follow. There is no playbook for this. It literally is different from person to person, from house to house, from location to location, from setup to setup. Every single variable changes the whole damn thing. Yeah. Uh, as I moved three times in three years recently until wow. we finally bounced here, my production was complete shit. I went from outdoors to working out of a garage to then working out of a warehouse to then finally out on this big five acres property. Um, and for those three years, it was it was a nightmare. I mean, it was it was very difficult to stay afloat, uh, having to relearn everything, redo everything. Um, so. Yeah. And, and it's adjusting, and, adjusting. Yeah, it's, it's constant adjustment. Yeah, it, I think we tend to oversimplify it. I think people pick one thing, yeah. f fixate on that, and then say, "Okay, this is a hard fast rule." Mm -hmm. But the fact is, is there really are no hard fast rules. It's going to completely be dependent on your 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 even your lifestyle can have an effect. If you're yeah. somebody that's home all the time and interacting with the stuff, that you're going to have a totally different experience than somebody that has to work nine to five and only sees the animals at you know early in the morning or at night and all that stuff. All that stuff changes it all. So yeah. working a job and then having to deal with let's say your regular family stuff or regular yep. life stuff, right? And it really yep. only puts how much how many real hours into what you want to do, um, which is breeding. And it, it, it takes a lot more than peeping in real quick. Sometimes it is very easy. You know, don't get me wrong. It can be, but yep. that's not all the time where you're going to have to pay attention, you know, change stuff up and then adjust. Yep. Yeah. I, uh, I, I killed a Kimberly Rock female with this uh, same issue we're talking about. I, I don't know where I put them in my head on a pedestal and I received a clutch of eggs. And so in my head, I, I'm lucky. We're done. I'm just happy I got a clutch of eggs. And uh, I had to go to work for, I don't know, uh, forever during 2020. And uh, she decided on herself to go ahead and go again with basically no support from me. And that didn't end too well. So, um, uh, yeah. Happens. Yeah. Being hands on and checking on your animals, especially, I would say, especially lizards, any type of lizards. Um, yeah, they, they're not snakes. They just work different. I, I envy the snake guys sometimes. You know, yep. they had a tough day. I'm like, oh, well, let's talk. I only have to feed two <laughs> two times yeah. a month. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ha having done both, I can definitely say there are days where I look around here and go, why the fuck am I doing this? I can right. just go back to doing snakes. And then I only have to, mm. you know, wouldn't have to think about it. All the stuff. Lizards definitely are. They're definitely more they're they're more intensive as far as uh you get a lot more out of them though i mean the snakes right. it's in a you know i yeah. mean I, I like snakes too but they're just not as interactive as right. as like like lizards and stuff lizards you don't the day to day you know right. you, gotta, yeah. you gotta eat almost every right. day or yeah. they're always out and about uh, yeah. snakes kind of stay tuckered in little spots sometimes but yeah and the snakes don't they they don't really come to you like like when i go outside and the monitor they they come the lace in particular come right up to you and yeah. they'll take chicks out of your hand and stuff you know snakes they're they're just you know yeah <laughs> they're, they're they're just a very singular minded predator well, yeah. i asked myself uh what like man if i if it wasn't varanids what would it be you know and I, i'm just looking at other lizards and right i just can't i just i couldn't do it maybe i just stick with adotria and just not oh, do any, not do any bigger stuff when I'm much older, you know. Um, I love the look of disgust they give you when they realize you don't have anything for them. And it's yeah, 
that turn yeah. away and look over right. your shoulder like you pee on. I <laughs> I have no respect for you. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's totally um, true, man. Yeah. And you know Eric Burke's going down this path right now with um I saw of, that. Yeah. I yeah which is that. funny because um another host of a show, Riley Jimison, I was telling him I, I came up with this uh kind of plan of of how to destroy NPR. <laughs> And I was just doing it out of fun, but <laughs> step one was to get Eric some monitors, and then uh, step two was to get him, uh, you know, the Holy Grail of Dwarf monitors, the Kimberly Rocks, which he's yeah. got, or they're coming. And it's just like, oh, it's all crumbling. <laughs> <laughs> really, uh, he's going to have less time. Yeah. yeah. yeah the, uh, the monitor, I don't know, podcast radio or something soon enough. So uh, <laughs> Yeah. One day you'll log into Morph Market and all his carpet pythons will be up there. Right, right. You know, a lot, a lot of guys end up that way. A lot of guys, yeah, uh, they're yeah. like, hey, you know, I'm, I I got my first monitor, and then bam, they're like, they're hooked. You know, I think yeah. what they were wanting out of the snakes possibly, and, you know, some people are different. Some people love the fact that they don't have to tend to the snakes so much, but some people, you know, they want the, the reward, and that's a fun lizard, you know? I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's cool. It's uh, interactive. It's like a dog almost. And, um, uh, you know, I think just people go from uh, having a ton of snakes and then getting rid of all of them and jumping into their first set of monitors. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, yes. honestly, Varanids kind of they are the lizard version of the Chondro Emerald Tree Boa kind of thing, where people that get into them really get into them and. Because they're not real, they're not very suited for you know like beginners and people that don't, you know, spend a lot of time researching. Varanids require a lot of research to really do them properly. And chondros and emeralds are the same way. You know, you don't really see any casual guys keeping chondros. You don't really see any casual herpers keeping monitors yeah. either, for the most part. I mean, yeah, the pet trade ones, you know, the savannas and stuff like that. You see yeah. that like the kind yeah. of entry level but i mean most people keep odatria most people that keep any of the australian varanids and and most of the indonesian ones they're pretty hardcore about this stuff so yep. uh, they're already looking if it starts with ackies they're already looking towards that next yeah. project yeah yeah exactly yeah, yeah. who would who would want to be shitted on every day <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly uh, i, I have much. to like my my, my my lady's like, why do you change clothes so much every day? <laughs> it's like, yo, I just got shitted on again. Right. And, uh -huh. and I have to shower now again. It's already been like, and it's only four o'clock and I've, you know, done my stuff. And yeah, sometimes, I mean, some people already know this, but I go into the room just bare boxers or that way they don't, if they shit on me, yeah. it's, it's on the yeah. skin. I get to hose <laughs> it right off. Just hose it off. Yep. <laughs> it's Very accurate. Show. Yeah, it Trying is. to get it out of the holes in your Crocs shoes, though. Is, uh... I was I was going to say, man, more of my van. I have like five <laughs> pairs of fucking checkered vans, and all of them have shit things <laughs> on them from from a freaking Spencer's or a Mertens. Just right. pick them up to move them, and they just and they always hit you in the shoes. Yeah. And, and then it's just yeah. like you fuckers. We'll yeah. we'll try to uh, to collab with uh, maybe we'll get vans with Gore-Tex for the uh, right. <laughs> Rinsable shoe. Right. <laughs> Let me spray some Scotch Guard on there. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Time, great time. Great times as a keeper. We're really, you know, we're trying to hold it in here, Ron. 
but we've been excited about having you on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciate it, but nothing to be excited you, about, man. No, it's oh. the, the information alone, you know, like it's we we get loved by the, the whole community and you know, that's one thing, but what you have to bring to the table, I mean, thank you. Thank yeah. you for being able to adjust like the outdoor things, I don't think many people get just how complicated that shit is, you know. Um, and then to apply yeah. apply it, test it out on on animals that you know cost ten twenty thousand dollars. Know? <laughs> it's like I would test it out yeah. on case, but you know, it's like I, I'm gonna want some tried and true stuff. And you know, you're able to really put it out there with how you can really think outside the box for the current box, you know, that you're working yeah. on. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, to be fair, uh, 20 years ago, I never would have made attempts like this. Like I would not take any breeding loans or anything for, I, I was constantly in the, in the mid nineties when I really started making a name for myself, getting offered, you know, all this shit that I always wanted. People were trying to put it on loan with me to breed, but I was too scared to take it because I was afraid I would kill. And I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to, yeah. Yeah. I didn't want to hurt anybody else financially. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't touch it, but as I've gotten older and I've gotten more confident with how this all works and I've had everything thrown at me from multiple hurricanes back to back to, you know, crazy dips where it got super cold and um, there was then super hot. So I, I know how to navigate it now more or less. So I know where the lines are that I can push it. And then if I, and I, I can see the stress coming up. So as soon as I, if I'm pushing, trying to push something to find a, the sweet spot and I see I've gone too far, I can usually read it in the animals and I immediately back it off and it rectifies the problem. So, but if I didn't do that, I don't think I would have been as successful as I've been and, and able to maintain it anyway for I mean, it's going on 30 some years. So yeah, it's, it's kind of a, I mean, it's risky, but you, you kind of, and I, but I went into this, what I'm saying, what I'm trying to say is I went into this slowly. I, yeah. I, I, I tend to spend a lot of time researching before I actually do anything like honest, most of my day is spent reading even, <laughs> even today. I mean, I have interest in all sorts of scientific fields that I like to read that stuff because I'm looking a lot of times just for things that I can apply to this. Yeah. Like I've taken a lot of ideas from aviculture, from aquaculture, from, mm -hmm. yeah. from botany. I mean, I've looked at all of those different, you know, disciplines and, and I've stolen pieces that I, that, that were, that I could apply. So, and I have friends and all, I have friends that have fish, you know, fisheries and, and, yeah. and, and, that are bird guys that have all these parrots and we talk and every once in a while, somebody will say something and a light bulb will go off. And I'm like, Holy shit, that's the same problem I see in this thing. And they already worked it out and they have a fix for it. And then I'll find a way to make it, you know, apply it. <laughs> so that's, that's I love uh, that. Yeah. I, you know, I have, I have a buddy who does um, bird stuff. He's kept reptiles too in, in, in bred reptiles, but uh, he, was seeing a problem with some, I think, hornbills or some something, and uh, they weren't nesting right. They couldn't get in the nest, but um, he found out that he needed to, whatever type of bird it was, I'm getting this wrong, you know, he needed to add in, um, I guess, some type of like almost dirt and mud that the birds could pack around the opening of the, the nest or yep. the nesting hole for access. It's like they needed to go through this tradition or this ritual 
to yep. use it. And um, so I, I love that he noticed that and other people that notice a problem and can adapt and think outside the box. I, I try to keep them kind of close because I'm like, so do I. Yeah. You know how to think. <laughs> uh, yep. Yeah. I might have an issue and you might be like first five people I'm reaching out to, you know, and um, I think that stuff's important. So, you know, the stuff you, you've had to do and uh, had to even right now are adapting to um, keeping this stuff outdoors just was like, yes, I can't wait for this to happen. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. I know, like you said, there's 30 years plus behind this type of um, having to figure things out on the fly, including being at the beginning of a lot of uh, some of these species to begin with, like no one knew how to keep things. So yeah, um, I'm sure there's a, a, a pile somewhere of the uh, rest in peace animals, you know, that uh, some of this was built on. And that's not just true for you or for us. No, no. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that. Honestly, I was able to to kind of mitigate most of that, but because I so so guys like me and Alan Rapashi, we're we're both in our fifties. We came up kind of after like guys like Bob Mayhew and Bill Love and and those guys already built the foundation. And they and they actually have, you know, obviously predecessors before them. But Philippe de Vaugelais, Bob Mayhew, that whole thing around the Vivarian magazine, mm-hmm. me me and Alan uh were part of that so we got to we had a huge body to build off of so you know he went his direction there was a lot more of us alan's just a good friend of mine and that's who's coming to mind at the moment but um you know we 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 had a lot a a good foundation vivarium magazine was incredibly influential i i think it was probably had the biggest impact on me as far as a herpetoculturist and stuff that, you know, even the, the philosophical uh, angle that Philippe de Vaugelais would write articles on, you know, how to think about doing this, you know, the way it should be done, you know, uh, being thoughtful in what you're doing, all that stuff that really made a big impact on me when I was young. And, and I think my entire gen, my group that you know came up at that time and all of like you guys and everybody after it's all kind of trickled down i think we all kind of uh were given a huge boost up because of that magazine because of those guys um and they had a much better thought process especially the california guys i grew up in florida to be honest i was kind of a odd man out down here there there were a few hardcore breeders and herpers um, but it was mostly importers, a lot of, you know, just kind of animal dealers kind of thing. Particularly in Miami at the time, there there was a handful of herpers, and you'd see them at the herp clubs and stuff. And but it wasn't like California, like especially that San Diego area produced a lot of like really groundbreaking, amazing guys. That was definitely the scene. And I actually, if I could have afforded to, I would have sold my sold and moved out there. But when yeah. when uh, Alan flew me out there in the early nineties and out to La Jolla and I was looking at the house prices. Wow. Dude, there's that's, no way I can. That's crazy. That's <laughs> yeah. uh, La Jolla beach is uh, the beach to my hometown in San Diego as well. So that's yeah. Really nice. yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, oh, I love it out there, man. It was, it was cool, man. He was living yeah. up on the, on this hill on this, and you could see the ocean. And yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a great thing. Hurricanes. You know, I hear people talk, just uh, talking about Southern California. I did get to live up in the uh, mountains just above San Diego and L.A. There's a range of mountains. and um, That's me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and honestly, 
out of all of uh, all of the U.S. and I have the Audubon Society Reptile Book, you know, so I've studied where things are since I was a kid. Yeah, me but, too. Um, yeah, <laughs> but Southern California to me is just got a special place in my heart. You know, just uh, yeah. it's the one place I think, unless I'm missing that you can find um, in those same mountains, you can find rubber boas and rosy boas in yep. the same day. And yeah. it's, it's absolutely amazing. Blows my mind where you can find a, a mountain king snake and a desert king snake, you know, um, in yep. the same day. And yep. and for that reason, and there's still things out there that, you know, I might say, well, that's some kind of side blotch, patch nose, whatever it is. But I have yeah. never seen one that color, you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's kind of amazing. So. I know everybody has their own thing, but that's, you know. No, it's uh, it's great, man. Like, I was able to go to the Mojave and look for grasshoppers when we first started, right? You're and right. I found a tree frog in the Mojave. That's right? weird. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I was like, yo, this is a river that is flowing. <laughs> and yeah. and then I found a tree frog. And I was just, this is this is dope. This is like... You know, you never really see that. And where where we where I'm at in the where in this part of California, I guess there's so many ranges that basically overlap, right? Yeah, is that mm-hmm. is that what it is? Is just yeah. so so many different ranges that are basically right around this San Gabriel Valley Ridge. And man, it's there's a lot of great stuff around here. I just I'm actually scared because the mountains are so huge compared to what I'm used to in the Bay Area. We got little hills compared to these things here. <laughs> uh, you know, they're, they're, even now, or not now, but even in springtime when it's really heavy, the snow is still up there for a while. That's how tall yeah. the mountains are now. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I found out there's there's things you can only see, like, um, when certain storms hit. That's the only time they come out in those mountains. Uh, salamanders in the desert, you know. Um, there's yep. crazy stuff you can only uh, – there's um, the red leg frogs that oh. – protected up there and i i tried to get this information out at the time i guess i'll say here on the monitor podcast (laughs) but there were these storms that would hit and um right right as the clouds are out there in the desert and you feel the humidity and it's it was right around going up the mountain right around the three thousand foot level um in elevation there was a um, runoff creek that was right next to one of the highways up there. And when the storm would happen, and sometimes it didn't happen for three years, you know, it, you'd go a couple of years. So conditions were right. The whole road for, I mean, uh, a mile in one way and a mile another way, because that stretch is, is pretty long. It's not that long, but uh, the whole road would be covered with these frogs. And I'm thinking to myself, not to upset anybody, but are these things really endangered or... <laughs> Are we just not looking for them at the right time? Because I mean, it, it looked like yeah. something out of the Bible at that point. Where yeah, who can see to do the Terminator crawl? You know, <laughs> I, I know they do surveys, but no one's looking at the whole landscape, <laughs> like right. the, the whole thing. You know, so oh, yeah. what they see in record numbers or whatever throughout the years, and they're gonna guess. I get it's probably just a real guess. You know. Yeah. No, I, I mean that uh, honestly, that's for sure. The, a lot of the species are just so cryptic. That people just don't know. They're they're all. I mean, look. They re. It wasn't that long ago they rediscovered the freaking crested gecko, and, <laughs> and now the damn things are. And I mean, I'm fairly. I don't know if you're familiar with Hoplodactyl stelcordi, but it's like the world's largest gecko. There's only one specimen that was collected in the 1800s. It's in. That's in, in a, a uh, in a museum, yeah. right? 
It's this giant gecko. No one knows where it was actually definitely collected, and nobody knows anything really about it, and it's determined to be extinct. Well, how the hell do you know that it's extinct <laughs> if you yeah. don't know where it was collected? And if it was collected in New Zealand, New Zealand has gigantic forests. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I realize that this gecko is like two to three times larger than the biggest Lichianus, which it's a, that's a big gecko. But yeah. if it lives, if it's a treetop crown giant, like the anoles have these crown giants, these giant anoles, and that's they basically live up in the crowns. They only come down when they absolutely need to. But they're diurnal, and that makes them easy to find. Mm -hmm. If you've got a crown giant gecko that only come that's nocturnal, and it lives in stumps, you know, in knot holes way at the tops of these giant trees in this old forest, what are the chances mm -hmm. that anybody's going to run into those? Yeah. Right, especially yeah. in a place like New Zealand that's not being heavily deforested. Yeah. So it's probably still there. I mean, and how badass would that be to go find that thing? Well, it's funny. Uh, some of the people that might be worth talking to is um, New Zealand has a lot of uh, guided hunts for uh, red stag. And there's these, um, uh, I can't remember the name of them. They're a type of sheep or something. That are yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, some of the stuff that, you know, my buddies would tell me they would see over there because one of them would guide over there and he's trying to describe it. And I'm basically like, draw a picture for me, you know, take and a picture. Another, <laughs> yeah. Well, they're only worried about what they're there for and not the rest. It doesn't matter to them. You know? Correct. Um, yeah. In like the, the fly fishing guys, because some of the trout, it's like world renowned uh, trout fishing over there in New Zealand. And so really, I didn't know that. Yeah, so they go to these remote places, and they even sneak up on the water in a certain way and everything. And um, while they're looking around to tie their flies or match them to whatever they're seeing around them, you know, my buddy said it was like being in the uh, Geico Gecko um, um, uh, tryouts or whatever, right. you know, uh, casting is what he said. And I said, well, what were you seeing? I don't know. You know, <laughs> he wasn't worried about that. So, um, yeah. yeah, I think there's – I'm, I'm – I'm convinced there's a dwarf Argus somewhere in, uh, in Papua New Guinea. And I want, I want to see wouldn't it. surprise me. <laughs> no, I mean, it really wouldn't. There, there's so many, look, Indonesia's got what, I don't know how many thousands of islands right. and, and yeah. they find new shit all the time. Yeah, like right. even the last 20 years, they found a handful or more of different monitor species. And that's not including all the other stuff. And back when imports were very common and you could go through these mass shipments, I used to find stuff in there that was clearly different than what it was supposed to be. You know, Man. being one off and you wouldn't even know really what to do. Sometimes yeah. I would – there was a guy named Mark Bayless who was a friend of mine, big oh, monitor yeah. guy. Oh, yeah. So I would – We know yeah. that. Yeah. I, I would take photos of, you know, like weird, especially the Indicus complex. There was a lot coming in out of the Solomon Islands at the time. And I was finding these Indicus – Indicus-esque things. Yeah. Um, and I would take photos of them and send it to Mark. And Mark's like, I, I don't know what the fuck that is. That doesn't <laughs> fit any. Yeah. So we would find that. And there'd just be one here and one there. So I never really bothered to pursue it. Um, but And when those uh, Molinas came in, there was there was oh, yeah. different Molinas. There, uh, there were pink ones. I saw <laughs> bright orange ones. They were There were different things just within that group. So I don't yeah. know whether... Yeah. No, no, you said bright orange, and um, actually, Kai is holding on to something for me right now. That's um, yeah, it's just I, a really 
flame black. It's like a Dorianus with a completely orange back. Um, yeah, it's, really? it's, got, it's got a yeah, it's it's incredible. Um, turquoise tail, the thing but it came, more, it came in like a typical looking Dorianus, you know, but uh, it just it it had the typical black and white spots. Um, but man, it ended up being something very, very spectacular. And it's just kind of one off from all the other pastel orange spots that came in or whatever. Um, yeah, I myself lost in the Indica stuff. So, I mean, I mean, there is a there is a thing too, like with the giant anoles. I work with four different species, right? If I mm -hmm. took the hatchlings of those four species and put them all in one enclosure together, I could not tell you what was what. They're <laughs> identical. But then when they as they mature, they become clear that they're right. you know what they are. What they are. But, yeah. I mean, so I mean, in imported hatchlings, you could be seeing the same effect in some of those species that have that are close closely related but have a wide range right uh, you know so i mean i don't know man there's there's a lot of of there's so much more out there than than i think most of us kind of we think we you know we've seen it all they found it all not even close no not at all yeah not yeah. even close so somewhere in the world there's pink molinas running around <laughs> the jungle yeah. up in a tree right you know, yeah. Whoever lives in that area, if there's someone, they know about them. But to them, yeah. they're just that that pink lizard that runs. Exactly. Around. Yep. Yeah. I mean, all the, the New Caledonians knew that Rachidactylus ciliatus or whatever it is now, Corolophus. So they knew they were all over there, but uh, but we thought they were extinct. Yeah. And I remember, I think it was Henkel that found the first one, but he sent a photo to, I think it was uh, it's Strictly. Uh, one of those places, and they showed me this picture of this thing, and I, I was blown away. I couldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, "Man, they they refound, and it didn't have a tail, you know." And it was just this weird, uh, you know. Oh, this was this was formerly extinct, and uh, and now now there there's more of them <laughs> outside of New Caledonia. I mean, I've got a building a, a freaking room full of them myself. Yeah. So they're just, uh, I mean, they're everywhere. But it's weird to go out there and see something that was once considered extinct and and it was right there in front of everyone's face the whole time yeah, yeah. exciting though but yeah it's yeah. maybe just ignorant on our part <laughs> it's just uh, the right person at, it just has to be the right person at the right time yeah. there's really not that many of us that are so freaking nerdy about this shit that we would go on a vacation somewhere and then see something go oh that's not in any book and I don't think that's you know or that's extinct oh, yeah. I know what that is I mean, how many people would, you know, would actually know that? Maybe listening to this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Man, exactly. If I went to Indonesia, if I went to Indonesia, I would die that first week. Right. I probably <laughs> probably get sick from the water or something like that. Not listen, yeah. yep. or end up end up like slipping off some low cliff because because I thought I was like you know gonna catch something. Yeah, that, that'd be me. Yeah, I yeah. think that'd be all of us. Uh, yeah, or getting a bite from something, and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, scared to touch things. Yeah, you know, I, I think about that too with the Komodo dragons. How many people are over there, and your focus is on this huge lizard walking around? Your groups of them. Yeah, but who's looking in the trees at what else yep. is there and looking down at you? This whole thing going on, you know? Yeah, uh, exactly. Species that have maybe gone nocturnal to stay safe from being it eaten, but yep. are 
I guess dineural during the days, but they don't move off those trees until you know the sun sets. And then I guess speaking about large lizards again, do you still have crocs at all? No, not anymore. I mean, I, I was actually I was start the I was about to go back into doing them again. And then the lace monitor project came up. It was all <laughs> I got. I got offered to uh, a breeding loan for a group of adults, and I was like, "Well, that's what I've always kind of wanted." And I kind of already been there, done that with the Crocs. So, you know, and Crutchfield was working on them, and I was talking to him. That was he was asking me, you know, a lot of questions about back when I bred them and stuff like that. So I was in contact with him a lot, and he's the one that really kind of got my interest into doing them again because. I hadn't thought about him in a while, and I was like, "Well, I'm kind of stable now. Maybe I, I should, you know, it'd be cool to hatch those again." But uh, but the lace thing came up, and then so I was just I I had started to pick up Crocs, and then I just went ahead and sold them off, and just I wanted to focus on only four Varanids because Varanids, like we were saying earlier, they're a handful. They require you know a, a, an amount of attention. If you notice, every no one that's really successful with them has like you know, 40 species or anything like that. They have five, maybe 10 species at the most. And yeah. they're usually really successful with them. Most people work with like two or three and are really good with them. So I picked four. Heather wanted really to work with Ackies and kind of use them as a, because she really liked them and she wants to lower the number. We basically live off of bearded dragons. That's the primary thing. We produce around 4,000 a year. Um, so that's that's what keeps pays the bills and keeps us all everything going and then so uh you know she wanted to kind of move over to doing less but better stuff you know yeah uh, so she wanted to work with the ackies and we've got a nice group of red ackies but other than that i got the spencers the lace and the mertens they were all kind of part of the same initial package this ryan johnson a friend of mine was uh he had had bought these and uh, so he was like hey you want to take these on loan see what you can do with them and i was like all right so <laughs> yeah so yeah. Well, uh, i don't know how alan does it alan's got a lot uh i just run around <laughs> and throw roaches in cages like cheerios <laughs> yeah yeah um, a couple things and i can barely manage yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a decision it's just like okay and i almost have to prep my thought process for it but it's kind of in a, a mode now until we go into winter but uh yeah. But Ron, are you are you working with any of the albigs, white throats or black throats? I was, um, but I recently, again, when we got the lace, I was looking at those, and ah. and uh, so I ended up selling. All. I still have a absolutely massive pair of black throats, but I recently worked out a deal with a zoo, and they're going to the Virginia Zoo uh, okay. soon. Dennis McNamara is over there, and he nice. wanted them for an exhibit, so. Um, I was like, all right, that's, that's, they're going to a good place. These are absolutely gigantic ones, man. Everyone that's seen them says they're the biggest, the male anyway, is the biggest one they've ever seen. And I, I can barely move that thing. So when hurricanes come, that's more more than anything though. That was the real reason. I don't really want anything any more bigger than a lace. Lace are easy to move. You know, they're, they're big, but they're light and they're, and they're, but you know, a seventy-pound dragon around a seventy-pound blackthroat, and trying to get it out of the enclosure and get it into a you know when a hurricane comes and get it into a box and get it into a building is just. Yeah. So I, just I just and then when you have a bunch of them and you're trying to deal with all this other stuff, it's just too much. So yeah, I yeah. Gotta, 
I was like, all right, I got the big Varanid that I wanted, and I'll work with these medium size. The Spencers are nice because they're medium size. The Mertens are the same thing, and and I, that's the size I kind of at this stage kind of yeah. really like. I'm kind of tired of dealing with monsters, but three foot and below. Yeah. yeah, you say medium size, but I guess it's all relative to uh, <laughs> if you've kept the red croc monitors, you know, it's like, oh, this is a small guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, it, yeah. and the black throats are like honkers. That's just, yeah, yeah. the head is like this big. Alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah they eat out of house and home. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're, uh, the food bill for those things is, is more than seven lace mm -hmm. just for the pair. It's just wow, how so. much they can can consume. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Compare, comparable to like, let's say across the board, not all monitors are just this, like they're not just heat them and feed them, or you can't pound no. them all. You no, know? absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's some that can eat like crazy. Like let's say let's take Argus for for example. Like, <laughs> yeah, they're basically uh, garbage disposals. Yeah, you know my Indicus, I couldn't even take a, a half of that diet and feed it to that animal once a week. To my indicates, mm -hmm. you know, it's just they yeah. don't even want it. After two or three bites, they're they're okay. Yeah, yeah, that and that that is the thing that I see a lot is I think everybody, not everybody, but I think a a, a fair size segment thinks that uh, water monitor dynamics apply to all varanids and right. or or even Aki dynamics apply to all varanids, and it it's not the case. They're they're each one they're individual and. There are some some basic things that are somewhat applicable across the board, but um, they are definitely you need to look at the species individually and see you know exactly what the mechanics of that animal is and, and yeah. then adjust appropriately. So right, and I guess going into the the next thing, I kind of wanted to touch on with you, Ron, having that experience with the larger monitors and uh, pretty much I would say the the most potentially dangerous monitor that we can actually have access to yeah. in a croc monitor um <clears throat> you you have to be on your game as far as behaviors as far as watching yeah. the animals and even with i mean a, a lace monitor is big enough to do some damage um, yeah but you know we we can't treat these things like ackies you can take a bite from an ackie it might hurt i've had some bulldog me but it's yeah. not yeah it's not gonna be um you know life-changing and some of these bigger ones, uh, even a bite from a, the big albigs, the blackthroats, I mean, could potentially affect you uh, years down the road. So working with those bigger animals, do you have um, certain precautions you take or is it just getting to know your animals or how do you approach that? Um, I mean, it's a I probably do things that I'm not I, I'm not even really, you know, kind of I, I kind of subconsciously do without really noticing. So, um it is more reading the animal. You can tell, like, I, I won't, I don't really interact directly with the biggest stuff here when they're at peak operating temperature. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm going to feed them, I feed them just an hour before they're going to hit that, that really, you know, thing, because even super tame, they just, they're, when they're at operating temperature, they're predatory, you know, uh, instincts kick in to some degree, even if they just are super aggressive feeding, they, it's easy for them to make a mistake. And if they make a mistake, it, it could, it could potentially send you to the hospital. So I've managed to avoid that the entire time. Now I don't work with croc monitors anymore 
mostly, I mean, the only reason I really stopped was because my ex-wife kind of pushed the issue because I almost got bit in the head by a, a nine and a half foot one that was tame, but, um, that had less to do. I mean, really in retrospect, it was because it was two or three days prior to the Daytona show. It may have actually been the day before this was like in 2000 or 99. I, I can't remember. But anyways, a bunch of people were down. They wanted to come over, so I let them come over, and, and I had them all there at once, rather. Nowadays, when I get visitors, I trickle everybody out. If, if you want to come down, you got to let me know ahead of time. i got to know you somehow, and uh, I only have one or two people over at a time. There's no groups anymore. But I had a group there that day. It was like eight or nine people, as I recall. And uh, I was in the enclosure with this thing showing off. It was a nine-and-a-half-foot male. I had hand-fed this thing for years, never had an issue. And, uh, I was in the enclosure. I had fed it and I was talking to the people and I noticed every, and I heard the side of the chain link fence enclosure rattling and everybody's face was looking at me like, Oh shit. And I looked over and he was right in my face with his mouth open and I had to grab him and stop it. He wanted me out. And I think, but I think it was kind of a he had all those people there he didn't recognize mm -hmm. and i think it just kind of set him off it was a hot day as i re if i recall correctly and it was you know so he was probably at full operating temperature that day which uh is a term i kind of stole from jeff lem because jeff <laughs> worked with him as well and jeff knows that those big monitors when they're at when they're at full temperature um yeah. you know they're they're a different animal it's just the way it is. I mean, I know they're they're tame and they're trustworthy when they're not, and they probably are for the most part still trustworthy even then. It's not the fact that they're untrustworthy. It's the fact that if they make a mistake, just like a dog can make a mistake, you know, if a pit, if a if a chihuahua makes a mistake, it's a whole different game than if a mastiff or a pit bull makes a mistake, yeah. and it's it's the same kind of thought process. So when I see, I've been critical of people that I've seen taking six seven foot croc monitors to shows and letting the public touch them i mean okay that's fine it's tame i get it but if some little kid pokes that thing in the eye or some or some for some reason it gets spooked and it just i mean they yeah. just have to barely nick you to do catastrophic damage they are not in the same league as all the other Varanids. And I've been bitten by lots of, of shit over the years. Like I had my calf crushed by a tegu. Um, yeah, it was a big tegu. <laughs> but um, yeah, and those things are a total, those things are just, they're when they're indoors, they're great. You know, they they make good pets. They're another thing. You put them outside though, and they're at full operating temperature. They, they fly at you with their mouth open <laughs> and, and, you know, to, to get food and everything to them is food. So, right. Um, so it's the same kind of thing. It just makes me nervous. The only reason that those people get away with taking those croc monitors and doing that at those shows is because it's cool in those shows. So that lizard's not at operating temperature. If it wasn't, you wouldn't be able to pull that off. Right. And so if you can't pull it off when they're at operating temperature, you shouldn't even, that's my thought, my feeling anyway, is that it's, it's an unnecessary risk that would give us incredibly bad PR yeah. if just some rando got nailed by a croc monitor at a show. It would just be bad. Agreed. So, um, you know, some of the first shows I went to, I remember there was the, uh, the little caimans on people's shoulders and stuff. They right. Were talking, you know, yeah. I think early 90s. <laughs> right. After yeah. Few, and, 
and I mean that kind of dumb shit. I don't really. I mean, it's it's dumb, but I don't think that's necessarily. I mean, it's not good, but but it's not like it's it's just the thing with the with the. It can big, be bad. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. exactly. With the the croc monitor thing, I mean, I, I have friends that have been bit by five foot ones that have suffered catastrophic damage that had to have like re, you know reconstructive surgeries. Mm-hmm. I mean, Crutchfield got nipped on the thumb and wound up in the hospital yeah. for a week, yeah. and he got a nip. I the first one I ever hatched, I was so excited that I ripped the lid open on the on the incubating box and I just reached in and grabbed this fresh hatchling and it just turned around cause I scared it and it was slippery and I, it just barely, barely, you know, grabbed my finger and I didn't even feel any pressure and, yeah. and the blood was just squirting out of it. it. Cut me from one end to the other. It looked like some, uh, I took razor blades and sliced my own finger open. So when I saw that, I was like, Oh, you know, yeah. these, yeah. these guys. So that was fresh hatched. So seven feet long with a full, fully uh equipped set of dentition it's not right. worth the risk they're, they're just not that kind of a pet yeah. even my three foot guys i, I still gotta you yeah. know we talk, we talk about size but there are little guys that can do some damage to you, you oh know? yeah for sure the, the indicus stuff they're basically equipped with talons even if they're small right they're they're like hook talons compared to like a Dotria nails or an argus nail yeah. quite different and so um you know, I, I still had to pay mine quite a bit of respect. I really don't clip their nails because I need them to be functioning, climbing, and doing what I think they need to do without falling and breaking a leg. Yep. But, you know, when they're out, I I really have it pretty quick. You know, we get to bond a little bit. But they're, I'm no longer draping my monitor all over me anymore like I was when I was an immature kid, you know. I really yeah. try to really put that respect in my presence as people are seeing me with these animals representing these animals because i, I kind of now represent indicus as as almost a whole for a lot of people trying to breed yep. them so you know i want to do right by them right and so you know i can't just oh, tell people hey this is what i do with my guy look it's great it's a pet i'm just just stroking it you know i do give them a sense of hey my animals can be tolerable and tame but it's not like what you think you know it's it's just something that you work and you put in work for, it's not going to be just given to you. I can sell you a captive bred stuff, but even that animal can be wiry too if you never work with it the right way, you know. And so uh, I really try to get people to understand, man, these little three-foot things can do some damage to you, can, you know, um, send you to the hospital, give you stitches, really hurt you bad. I, I took a bite from a juvenile, like maybe sub-adult, Dorianus, and that's my worst bite ever. And uh, I still feel that in my finger when I look it's at it new. now. Yeah, when I when I, <laughs> yeah. when I look at it now, and I look at my finger, and I look at this scar now, and that lizard was barely three feet, barely, and it, it gave me the bite. I, I was basically crying trying to get it off my finger, you know. Um, yeah. And just in agony afterwards, it's just not not worth it. We want we want people to really be respectable of these animals too, you know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the worst bites I ever had, one of them was a three and a half, four foot green iguana that had mouth rot. Um, Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. Oh. Bit my, it, I, I still have no feeling in this, in this, uh, in this finger to this day. Um, it ripped the end of it off, but it was just kind of hanging. And it was, again, it was just before like an, a show. I think it was the Daytona show actually when it was in Orlando 
and I have an aversion to going to the hospital. So I probably should have because it was just hanging. But I was like, fuck this. So I got duct tape and I taped it up. Then it got infected as hell. Oh. And, I, and I'm at the I'm at the expo and there's a red line starting to run down my oh, finger. No. I had yeah. to call a buddy of mine and get some antibiotics. And I started taking antibiotics while I was at the show. And the Jeez. whole thing was throbbing. Oh, it's just terrible, man. It was one of the worst decisions I've, <laughs> I've, I can recall making. But um, I'm killing it at the show. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm being killed at the show. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. And, and another one was by a big toke gecko. It was in a, I, I saw this massive toke in this, in this uh, telephone pole there. They have this like metal rod that goes around, you know, near the bottom of the pole. And there was a hole in the top and I could see a huge toke in there I'm like a dumbass. I reached my arm in there to grab it and it grabbed me. And oh, then man. I couldn't get, I couldn't get my arm back out because it was holding on. This is in Florida. Oh yeah, it was oh, it, it wow. was it was right down the street from my. There were tokes like everywhere where yeah. I used to live, yeah. and um, <laughs> and I I could I finally get my arm out with the gecko attached. It was massive, but it tore the end. Uh, like my finger was all jacked up. There was blood everywhere. It was one of the worst bites I've ever had. I'll never forget it. It took forever to get that thing off. Ugh. I mean, it must have hung on for a good five minutes, and uh, and it. It just it mangled the shit out of me. And I was oh, like, yeah, that's, I'll never do that again. So it's not a good idea to stick your hand down a hole with a toke <laughs> Yeah, put the stick down there first and see if it has the stick. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's a, what we'll say right here on the Monitor Keeping Podcast is um, venomous animals, you know, croc monitors, toke geckos <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, it's, it's that it's that dog it's that dog lock that dog bite that, that yeah. lock jaw that they yeah. can be able to do man yeah, yeah exactly yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, some, of, some of the monitors will do it to you too you probably experienced that that bulldog the five to ten minute bulldog where it's like yeah. you're hanging them back in their cage please let yeah. go and they, they look at you. Bite harder. Yeah. They, they look at, at directly in your eyes, and they they close their eyes and bite down harder. Yep. And <laughs> Many times. Yeah. Many times. Yeah. Oh. Hey, uh, no, go uh, ahead. I, I, had a, I had a question. No, I'm just trying to get this in before we uh, we close up here in, in a bit. But um, I, I actually saved this question for last, and hopefully we can get to it sort of in-depthly, but how do you introduce or because you've had experience doing quite a range of animals, how do you introduce mean animals to each other or somewhat either hard or apprehensive to the whole, you know, getting to breeding and all that stuff like that. I myself, for context, my, my mangroves, Varanus indicus are great, but my Varanus coli, not so great. And um, they, they may be okay with me, but, they're a horrible introducing to each other. Um, I know all of them are wild caught. I got them all from Michael Cole, all raised up by him and everything like that. They're pretty right. spectacular animals. Um, but the male, I don't know. He's bred with Indicus before, but he's he won't breed with his own kind, and they're they're all over him. And I'm really trying to learn as many methods as I can to apply, you know. Um, so if I can pick your brain on that. Yeah, I mean, 
It's... I currently have cage partitions, you know, let them learn each other. I'm trying to do where I'm currently at is uh, I used to do just introduction into cages. And then I would do like swapping of fecal matter or cage material, things like that. Uh, mutual zoning, I've done that. Um, now I'm having cage partitions be applied into their setup and then letting them, you know, have weeks and weeks or months of somewhat of learning each other. But still that that male he's just he's wild boy <laughs> so i mean honestly the way i deal with all of that and and we have i don't even know how many but we've got a ton of blue tongue skinks like we have all the morphs and shit they're notoriously hard to introduce i keep the, we keep them all in pairs year round they're set up in pairs i generally try to set all the stuff up when it's babies i raise them in small groups or in pairs together you know, as soon as they're sexable, if I do groups and I'll, you know, start busting them out. I try to keep, but everything here for the most part is kept in pairs with a few exceptions. One is the Mertens because we have 2.3. The Mertens live in one large enclosure together all together. The Ackies are like 2.5 in and in together, you know, and again, a large enclosure. Um, and the Spencers are in a 1.3. But my primary mode, even with stuff that's aggressive is I generally put them together, let them work it out. If if they get too aggressive, I'll split them up, and then I'll wait a little while and try again later. But I keep trying until I get them to gel. Once I get them to gel, then I do not ever interfere. And that the thing is, is that sometimes it can take years yeah. for, for it to happen. And I've noticed over time, see, I used to do a lot of the stuff that you were talking about. Like I would give them a few months or, you know, and I, and I say, okay, it's not working. And I do something, but the problem is, is that every time you, you, you do Change. something, yeah, you're set, you're kind of resetting the thing. Right. And so you, the whole process starts all over again for them. Um, yeah. So sometimes you can hit it, right. You can get lucky. You can make the right change and then boom, they'll, but more often than not, I, I, I personally feel like it, it ends up working against you. And yeah. so now I've just gotten to the point and I used to think of it as being lazy, right? I was like, Oh, that's, you know, that's just throwing them together and forget it. But over time yeah. I found that that really does kind of is the magic thing. It's just kind yeah. of put them in there and then, and then accept that, you know, maybe they'll go in a year, maybe it'll be two years. Most yeah. of the time though, by three years. So about 36 months out, then they kind of, kind of click and then everything goes. Yeah. Um, but um, I noticed it particularly a lot when we were moved. Like I said, we moved every year for three years. So I, every time had, they had different enclosures, different setups and for everything here. And it was just, a fucking nightmare because I would move and then I have to reset it up. And then like all the anoles don't take moving at all. They're just like, you move them one time to a new location. They're like, fuck you. I'm done for, you know, and then and it'll take an entire year for them to kind of get back online. And actually this time it took two years and they finally yeah. clicked. So project that I was working on since 2013, that should have been to market by 2015, 2016 was set back until 2021 because of moving. And then prior to that, I got a divorce. So then I moved again. So actually I moved four times uh, since 2016 and it, and it took everything and set it all back seven years or so, or yeah. four years, five years. So it's good I to mean, know. Cause, it, cause it's like giving, you know, you don't want to give up. You, you obviously don't want to 
push and push and harm the animals, especially the girls right. either, you know, right? I myself have done and doing what you're sort of just recommending now, actually getting into it where nothing's really working. Let me just see what is what's the female that he'll chase and beat up less and put her in there. <laughs> and and yeah, like he's bit her a couple times, even like after the introduction, and he's not really maimed her though. Like he's done a couple of the other girls where like he'll almost break the back of the the end of their tail off. You know what I mean? Or or he'll literally yank them out of a hollow because that's how that's how like crazy he can be. Um, but this yeah. girl, this girl, he slept with. He's you know he'll he'll let sleep in the same log sometimes. But then all of a sudden, randomly, he'll bite her, and then she'll go off. And that's basically, I think, she's just encroaching on his space, and he's not really with all that just yet, you know. Um, it, the females, they're they're actually not too bad. It's the male. The male, he was imported as an as a sub adult adult, so he came here, you know, already realizing what the wild was, what it is. Yeah. And, and you know, he don't he doesn't really like life too much. I do have to take away some of his hides just to get him to, to be interactive somewhat. You know, he's stricken to one log that I can kind of work in and out of. So I still get to interact with him, but put five logs in there. You'll never see that guy, you know? Um, I mean, that may be what you actually have to do though. Right. Yeah. Some, sometimes, sometimes the it, forcing it out, you know, or giving it less opportunity might actually be causing, I've noticed, I've noticed so so here here's an example okay this is probably one that a lot of people don't know but a big problem when you're commercially raising bearded dragons is that they nip right if you go to pet stores you'll see nipped dragons right yeah. well a few years ago like 2012 or so um, I was producing a lot of them and and I was about 10 to 15 maybe even 20 percent of them every year were getting nipped and it, that's a huge problem when you're talking about thousands of baby dragons right and they're not sellable really at that point except as B grades to you know to some pet stores that'll that'll be able to find homes for them and stuff so it's a huge problem right and then one day I was flipping through this magazine travel magazine that my ex-wife just had sitting around and there was a picture of uh, it was about australia and there was a picture of like a cattle fence and there was these these like dried up weeds at the base of this fence and on top of the weeds were baby hatchling bearded dragons hmm. and i looked at that and i thought son of a bitch so my my thought process when i saw that was I had seen that in green iguanas in the wild in florida like when you catch baby green iguanas you find them all clumped up they hatch, they go within these weeds, and then you'll go by and you'll find a like a big weed that'll have like 20 baby iguanas all on it, right? And they're super easy to catch when that happens. So I thought, you know, bearded dragons clearly do a similar thing. And at the time, the the and, and this is the way most people keep them today, when bearded dragon clutch hatch, they put 20 dragons in a tub with a with a rock to bask on, and that's it. So what happens? So when I saw that, I thought, okay, I'm going to go make, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take a bunch of like little branches and make like this, this ball. I used to call it the tumbleweed. So I take a whole bunch of oak branches. I jam them together, make them all stick into this big ball that had like hundreds of little tiny sticks all sticking out. And I yeah. put it in with each bearded dragon enclosure and put 20 babies in it. And I never got a almost 
it virtually put the nips to zero. Uh, and, and what it was is, is that when, when you were basically forcing baby dragons on the ground, they were getting nervous and stressed. They would try to stack up on top of each other in, in, a, in a vain attempt to try to get to this, any kind of look because they want to naturally crawl up into these little sticks where they each have their own little stick and they're not. So, so if you notice when you go into a pet store and they got a bunch of dragons, yeah, they're all stacked up on top of each other, but they're not, they're not stacking on top of each other. Everybody's, oh, well, they're trying to get to the best heat source. No, that's not what they're doing. They're actually trying to get to the highest point. They want their own little stick. So they're trying to use each other as a stick. And when you fix that problem, they no longer have that nervous tick because I, I, I noticed that basically the fix for for uh, for not having the nip everybody was doing and they still do to this day is they stuff them with food three four yeah. or five times a day right correct well yeah. yeah so they keep them well fed and so they're constantly in a state of trying to burn that off so they're not actually active when they start nipping though is when they get active so if you're not feeding them and they go into active mode then it sets off this like nervous tick and they start just nipping at each other. They're not doing it because they're hungry. It's more like a nervous twitch because as soon as I figured out, as soon as I installed those tumbleweed things, I only needed to feed the baby bearded dragons once a day. Like you would normally feed everything else. No nips. The dragons look good. They were, I wasn't having it fixed all of the problems. And it was just a stupid picture that I saw in a travel magazine. Yeah. For, for me, for my, uh, I was having issues with the grasshoppers for years um, where I wasn't able to really get them to look uh, like there was the, the, the structural integrity of them was very poor at the end result, you know, missing legs, poor wing shaped, uh, all that stuff. Right. And so, you know, you can't really sell that. You can't breed that. You can't do much with that other than to feed it off. It's just, it's now just consuming, uh, wasting food and energy rather than anything else. Right. Right. So, that's a cost of goods and everything like that. So now what I do now is exactly what you got like with the bearded dragons. And um, I do something very similar when I saw this picture of grasshoppers uh, by a fence and these, the grass was just, you know, really tall. And there was a bunch yeah. of them, a bunch of them. Right. Yep. And every, every, every straw had a couple grasshoppers on it. Yep. And what I was doing at, at home, I was just having somewhat similar levels but they were all piled underneath the lamp. And so when they would do, do the locust thing and eat, they'd basically be nipping each other as well. Yep. But then what I did was I took chicken wire and metal fencing and basically maximized my surface usage. Now every grasshopper has their own little branch or bar on the on the on the chicken wire or, or hard wire cloth or whatever I wanted to use. And yep. they're all next to each other but separate. Yep. That's what helped me raise my grasshoppers with full integrity of the shape and the whole look of the animal, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, yep. yeah, it's crazy how you how you mentioned that because I just looked on this this picture online, and I was like, oh, that's kind of what I think I have to do. But how am I going to put grass in the cage? Well, obviously, I'm not going to put grass. And then I thought about using right. bamboo, and bamboo wasn't really going to work. Um, and then I just, I was like, all right, this metal fencing is going to have to work. It's, it looks, it's going to give the same, same application that what the twigs are doing, you know? 
Um, yeah, exactly. It's not. It's not. Uh, hang on one second. The dog came to. Uh, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, it's. Uh, it's. It's not. It's not necessary to get it exact. You just have to get in the ballpark. You know. Yeah. But but anyway, yeah. And just like that, my point was when you're describing the what's going on with that particular monitor. Yeah. It sounds to me it it's probably. You know, imports are tough, man. First of all, you know, right. I mean, I knew who you were because of the Indicus thing, so I knew you were the Indicus guy. So I knew you, I think you're one of the only people that's ever actually bred them, right? Uh, yeah, there's probably a handful, uh, but n- n- not really consistent like how I have been. And I've also been able to to take a parthenogenic one and put it back to the mom to actually produce more viable babies, too. So that, um, yeah, also some work, some extensive work with the project, uh, within a project, within another project. Yeah, that's cool because that's that's a pretty big achievement, man. Even though they import them, those are a tough. That's a tough yeah. monitor. I mean, almost no one's ever done it. Yeah, it's, so it's that's tough. that's very noteworthy. That's that's I had heard about that. I appreciate so, you. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's that's awesome, dude. So so yeah. So I but what I think you're running into then is uh, him being that, scared. Yeah, it's 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 that that sounds like you know I'm just I'm I'm just no you're right it's because whenever we're there's a change that he's frantic and then basically sets off doesn't really eat from tongs for a few days or a few weeks you know I got to kind of just set food out there let him kind of get the gist though I'm not I'm not gonna kill you or do anything bad to you anymore I promise you know type yeah and um and really really get his uh, his his confidence back. Now that I've put the logs back in there a little bit and put the female, kind of let them do their own thing, uh, he's not so so bad anymore, right? It's still only when he's at the entrance of the burrow, she'll come by, and bam, it's like something like that, you know? And I think that's she's encroaching on his space. Um, and so uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a couple things that I have in mind, but I really can't keep her from him. Or them from each other while they're in the space. So just giving them more hides from each other is all, all I really am able to do, you know. Yeah. Um, at this point, yeah. And that so, may be all you need to do. Yeah. Because uh, my fingers are crossed, and I really don't want to give up, you know. And at the same time, it's like it's it, it's like borderline dangerous for the female if I keep going, you know. So it's like, all yeah. right, I got to take a break. Uh, I, you know, there's some pressure a little bit on me but at the same time i have to actually drop that pressure from you know just the hobby itself people wanting them things like that and i actually just have to get back to these animals get back to just taking the time not having oh i'm gonna try to breed them by 2022 or something like that you know really really take my time with it and like it took seven years for indicus it's probably going to take quite a few years for coli as well. Maybe not so much because I've already gotten into the ballpark of learning what to do, but still, it's like a whole other animal, you know. Um, yeah. I wonder if you um, did your introductions or whatnot at lower temperatures, or if you yeah, that's another idea. Yeah, I'm actually trying now with just one lamp on rather than having it fully blown all light, and that's what I'm going to do when it comes winter time. Yeah. Yeah, well, so, yeah, we're getting around that that two hour mark. Um, man, I actually got, <laughs> I actually was, I got like a light bulb in my head just that now as we're finishing this up. So I really appreciate you, Ron. You know, like, yeah, yeah, didn't think nope. it was gonna go this great. 
um, with with the deep the deep conversation that we're having. You know, it's not just uh, how do you breed them, what do you do, you know, things like that. But really, really like the, the core of what you're getting and how you're thinking about things. Right. Yeah. I mean, honestly, man, that that I personally feel like that's the most important part. It's just critical thinking and 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 kind of, you know, learn the basic parameters and then do your own thing. I always I, I don't really I don't know. I don't really take blueprints from anybody like I'll read their stuff and I'll, you know, I'll say, OK, this guy did this and this is why he did it. But I, I don't copy anything. Right. I've never actually done that because I I tried that early on and it just it just you fail never, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It just it just never seemed I was like, well, you know, this doesn't really work in my situation. And so over time, you know, I started to figure out, hey, this really the way to do this is just to stop. Everybody gets tunnel vision and you just got to back up and look at the whole thing. You need to change yeah. it. If you're if you're banging your head against the wall, change your perspective. It's amazing what that will do. And you just got to force yourself to do it. So it's probably easier said than done, but <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. across the board. <laughs> right. uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's great. We'd love to have you back on maybe um, in the future after uh, a season. Spencer yeah. <laughs> You'll be hearing from me when you when you post pictures, uh, one way or the other, whether it's podcast or just uh, you know the the, uh, the list of tire kickers. Put me up there on <laughs> on that yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, listen, guys. Anytime, anytime you want me to come on here and run my mouth for a couple hours, just let me know. I'm always available. <laughs> so good to know. Go. Well, best of luck with everything you got going on, and uh, with this you know craziness and all the weather that happens. Um, hope you stay yeah, safe. Stay, stay safe out there. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. It was good to finally meet you too. I've heard both about both of you in the past. Like, uh, Alan and I have a mutual friend that that uh, I think it was actually was it Ryan Johnson that was telling me about you. Somebody I was talking to recently was like, "Oh yeah, well, oh no, it was Jeff Godbold. That's who it was." Oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jeff, Jeff was like uh, telling me about you the other day, and so yeah, so that's cool. And then Kai is like legendary for the Indicus thing, so. Thank you. That's, uh, <laughs> that's yeah, cool. I pay attention, man. I, I watch, dude, I'm as a big a fan of like so many people that do this. Anybody that does anything that's cool, you know, like you're working on those netted dragons, all that kind of shit. That's fucking awesome. And that's what this hobby needs more of. So I pay attention to all that. And I watch it all through Facebook and live vicariously through all you guys. I do the same thing with everybody else. Well, man, so, uh, well, Thanks for coming on this evening and everything like that. You know, um, the, everything that you do for the hobby as well. You know, I, I actually was kind of, you know, we're like starstruck, almost trying to figure out the right questions to ask without, you know, not trying to sound like a um, a teeny bopper or some type of some type of. Uh, yeah, well, that's that's totally unwarranted, but I appreciate it. <laughs> some type of groupie, but you know, yeah, it's I was nervous about asking the questions that just be perfect for the show yeah, yeah. No, that's that's cool guys i really appreciate it but i'm just a fucking jackass that breaks <laughs> over, so. that's, just, that's, that's all that's all it is so good stuff all right yep. we'll, we'll wrap it up uh i just want to say thank you to the npr network and go on their website guys so our listeners really or .net will get you there 
check out their site, check out the other podcasts, anything you're interested in, just like we're talking about all the different um, reptiles out there. You know, if you've got an interest, you, something sparks your interest, um, they have plenty of material. A couple new podcasts have popped up. Um, the list is getting so long, it's almost uh, incredible to name them all. And I think we just need to do a generic end of show, you know, a little recording for all the podcasts for all of us across the board. But um, pretty much anything you're into, some of um, the, the, the great minds out there are uh, talking about or their guests on the show. And uh, it's a wonderful source of information. But I would also suggest um, getting on board with U.S. Arc as they are fighting to keep our reptile rights alive. Um, pretty much the only organization doing that and assisting us in that. Uh, and then on the NPR uh, website, also check out their Patreon if you like hearing these podcasts and you want to support. Uh, I don't think there's any other like um, um, sponsors, anything else on any of the podcasts. So it's, it's kind of Eric just doing this whole thing. So if you want to get on there and support him, um, please do and uh, help us to help him to keep getting this uh, good information out and have some fun. So, all right, guys, till next time. Hey, thanks, Ron. Have a good one. Yeah, thanks a lot, guys. Mm-hmm.